1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. As you all know, the pandemic has created a massive experiment in how we could work. However, it's also offered very few roadmaps for how to work going forward. So do we go back to the office? What proportion of the time? How do we use technology more effectively? How do we foster the human connection we're all sort of craving? How do we accommodate individual needs and preferences in doing that and so while we don't yet have the answers to those questions, we do have some guidelines today for how to think about how to redesign the work you in your organization. So my guest today is Linda Grattan. Linda is one of the foremost global thought leaders on the future of work, and she's been named as one of the top 15 business thinkers and described as a rock star teacher. She's mm-hmm. a professor of management at London Business School, where she's received a number of teaching awards, including teacher of the year and where she has designed and directs the Future of Work course that's been one of the most popular electives at London Business School, as you can imagine. Her research on hybrid work has been featured most recently in a Harvard Business Review article on the cover, and she explores issues of work in her MIT Sloan column. For a decade ago, she founded HSM Advisory, which has supported more than 90 countries around the world to future-proof their business strategy. She has 10 books, Then one of the more recent ones, not including the one we're talking about today, is The 100-Year Life. just has sold over a million copies and translated in 15 languages. Just to do some name-dropping, though, Linda serves as a fellow for the World Economic Forum. She co-chairs the World Economic Forum Council on Work, Wages, and Job Creation. And she sat on the advisory board of Japan's Prime Minister Abe and serves as the advisory board of a number of global companies, and she lives in London. The book we're talking about today, though, is Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. Linda, welcome to the show. Wanda, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's an exciting topic, and it's a really fun book. I like it a lot, but let's start at the top of this one. We know every company I work with, and I'm sure all of your clients as well, would say, look how fast we moved in embracing this remote work. I mean, lightning speed. But I'm also going to say we had to. We had no choice. And for the most part, it worked. It worked far better than I think anyone would really have predicted ahead of the pandemic. But now as we're returning to offices, I think that there is a very small window of time to really think about how we work now. And I know among my clients, there's polls on both slides. Back to the office, because face-to-face is so much more informative and engaging and effective for some managers, or remote where possible because there's less commute time and more time to concentrate and effective for some other people, or so the theory goes. So what's the fundamental question leaders have to address today in terms of the future of work?
2: Well, thank you very much. I so agree with you, Wanda, that this is a very important moment. That's why I dashed with MIT Press to get the book out uh, this May, because I knew that we've, you know, organizations were sort of frozen. They, They unfroze during the pandemic and they're now refreezing. And so the question we're all facing is, well, how do we do that? How do we learn what happened from the pandemic? How do we take that forward into what I hope will be a more humane way of working. As you mentioned, I've written a lot of books and I've been at London Business School for more than 30 years and I've felt for a long time that we had to find better ways of working. You know, it doesn't work for so many people. Mums with young children, dads with young children, older people, a hundred-year life. I said, you know, people are going to be working into their 70s. So we have to change the way we work. And I think with the pandemic and the experiments that went with the pandemic we begin to think and to realize that our habits have changed some of our skills have changed we've become much more digitally literate um, and some of the ways that we what we aspire to is changing so I think we have a, a, a moment now of redesigning work and thinking about it both in terms of of place but also in terms of time so the number one question that I think executives should be asking themselves right now is how do I redesign work to make to help people be more productive. And the reason wonder that I focus on the question of productivity is that I've been around long enough to know that if in a couple of years' time, a year's time, the, the redesigns and experiments we're putting in now, if they lead to employees being less productive and less engaged, they'll all be pulled out again. So the, the fundamental question is what could we do now? to help people be more productive, to help them be more engaged, to help them to, to love the work that they are doing and to be able to be the people they want to be.
1: Good, call, good goals. Be the people they want to be, be engaged, and love, um, be productive as well. I think we, ch- we did two things in the pandemic. I've said this to several people. You're the expert, so you get to weigh in on this one and what you think. But I think we changed where we work. We didn't change an awful lot about how we worked. Yeah. And we actually made how we work harder because I think we may have doubled the number of meetings we were asking people to do. We've certainly increased the collaboration as Rob Cross has been so clearly stating and showing in his research. Mm -hmm. And the pressure on time now, I mean, it was crazy before, but the pressure on time now is unbelievable. Um, I don't know how any companies get any work done (laughs) <laughs> because of the pressure on time for meetings. Yeah. So I worry that if we don't solve some of this productivity issue and this pressure on time issue, they're going to lose people right left and center. I mean, yeah, what's your
2: I, perspective I, on that? Yeah, I so agree. I was talking to Microsoft last week and they, you know, they were looking at their own people in Microsoft and and just as you say, it has actually doubled the number of me, because they can see this from the Microsoft you know timetabling, the number of meetings has doubled. And, I, and I, I see any company that I work with Wanda that measures the number of meetings has said they've doubled. Why have they doubled? Well, I think partly because it using these platforms is so easy, isn't it? And, and we're getting into the habit of saying, I measure my productivity by how many meetings I've got in, in a day. And what we know is that the relationship between meetings and productivity is is very weak. I mean, just because you do lots of meetings, just doesn't mean that you're more pr- productive. So that's why in, in redesigning work, I sort of step back and ask the fundamental ca- question: What sort of job do you do, and how do you do it productively? And, and let me just mention three types of tasks that I think have very different outcomes. The first is focus. You know, now that artificial intelligence has taken quite a lot of the routine part of our work, for many of us the thing that makes us most productive is our capacity to work on something, you know, to work on, on maybe an analytical problem, to look at something that we need to think about in a more strategic way, to perhaps to analyze data. That requires focus. And we know that the human brain to be focused needs needs peace and quiet and it needs time, you know, Doing a focused task could be two or three hours. In a busy office environment, we were already losing focus before the pandemic. I mean, we'd already got research on that. So, if it's a focused task, and if you've got a place at home where you're undisturbed—and of course, not everybody has—but if you have, then do focused works at home. That—that's what—that's what—that's what the home could be for. The second t- sort of task is around coordination. You know, for example talking to your team members, making sure that a project's moving at the speed you want it to move, feedback, looking at problems, and so on. That coordination task, some of it needs to be synchronous, i.e., you know, you and I need to talk to each other. It doesn't matter if we're on, 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 on a Zoom or Microsoft team or we're face-to-face. We need to talk to each other. But quite a lot of that is asynchronous. In fact, again, before the pandemic, we realized that people – in coordination tasks, we're spending far too much time in face to face coordination and not asynchronous, where you're actually just looking at your sending, you know, you're doing your project plans, you're sending emails and so on. And that leaves the third area, which is about cooperation, which is a sort of innovative thing. And again, as you said earlier, Wanda. Meetings are pushing that out, and it's the wrong sort of meetings. So when people are saying to me, what do we do in the office? What is an office now for? It's part of what an office for is that amazing human stuff when you're sitting in the same room with a whiteboard, you know, talking about what might happen. You can do that on a platform, but it's also great to do that face-to-face. So those three tasks, focus tasks, coordination tasks and cooperation tasks, all require rather different configurations, both of place, you know, where am I going to be, but also time, how much time do I spend on this? Am I, you know, where where will I, how will this be done? So I entirely agree with you, Wanda, when you made the point that we have to find new ways of working. And I think this is a fundamental moment when we can do that.
1: I can't, I can't agree with you more. And I like this breakdown of recognizing, there, there are a couple of things that I find really important. One is recognizing the three different kinds of tasks and shades of gray in each of them, but three core fundamental tasks, focus task where I'm working by myself, coordination task where I'm just coordinating with you timelines, schedules, pass off of work, and cooperation where we've got that deeper engagement. I've long thought that we have an explosion of media between chat and Slack and email and LinkedIn messaging now and goodness knows what else and phones still existing sort of in some ways and Instagram and, and, and. There's an explosion of media, but we've not been clever about how we use our communication media available to us for office work. So on the asynchronous coordination there's tons of ways of doing that coordination in a far more efficient manner but it requires us to rethink what are we coordinating with whom why when do they need it how do they need it and i just think there's lots of tools there we should be exploring and considering
2: yeah, yeah i so i so agree and you know one of the w- words that i i i found myself using over and over again in in, in this new book redesigning work is the word intentionality, the, the idea that you have to design work, you have to intentionally design work. Now, frankly, we never had to do that because if you got everybody into the office at the same time, then the manager didn't really have an important job. People are perfectly capable of working, you know, in a in a in a in a group together. But now when we're trying to do something which is much more flexible, much more around individual tasks, we have to be a great deal more intentional about the way that we design work. But also, as you say, about the way that we use all these astounding tools that are available to us to make sure that we simplify rather than making things ever more uh, complex. And I would also wonder at this point, make a plea for realizing that switching off all of this stuff is so important. If you want to do focused tasks, I know that the, that our teenagers say, you know, Mum, I, I promise I can watch the telly and do my homework. They can't. I, I speak now as a psychologist. Um, the brain is, you can do something you can multitask if all the tasks are very simple, but if they require a, you know, a human brain to be thinking creatively, you have to have time when you're not disturbed. And I remember talking about, since the book's come out, I've been interviewed by a number of people, and one, of, one somebody interviewed me, and they said, oh, do you mean time for administration? And, and I, I said, no, no, that's not what I mean. I actually mean time to do human thinking. You know, one of the things I study, Wanda, is the impact of technology on work and the fact that very rapidly, and I think the pandemic has accelerated this, so much of what we do can now be done by a bot or it can be done by, you know, so some AI. I mean, if in fact, if you look at the, I, I just had a Harvard Business Review out in March, this March, uh, with Diana Garson, who's just stepped down from IBM, about the role of the manager. And what we said there was, you know, you can use so much technology now to, to lift stuff off their plate. But when you lift it off their plate, What we have to do is to give people time when they're not doing, you know, multitasking. They're just focusing on one thing. And if we can't do that, then humans will never compete against machines. The only thing that humans do better than machines is this astounding brain we've got and the way our brain is able to pull ideas together and to think things through. But to do that, humans need what psychologists call the rested brain. We need our brain to be rested. That's to do, obviously, about stress and sleep. But it's also to do about not being disturbed. And it terrifies me, really, frankly, that people just don't spend enough time in, in the day-to-day work doing the human part of their work, which is closing down their technology, switching everything off, and just thinking and, and, and reacting and, and imagining. Right. I'm going to go one step further
1: than that. I I talk to way too many people, as I'm sure you do too, who are not getting enough rest or enough sleep or appropriate nutrition or all those other things that we know keep us functioning as human beings, not just physically, but mentally sharp. And my favorite statement to you is how many people listening are as sharp at three o'clock in the afternoon as you are at nine o'clock in the morning? And if not, that tells you something about not just your rhythms, but something about how much you're exhausting your brain and not giving it those times to refresh. We should be as fresh at three and four as we were at nine. It's an interesting challenge.
2: Yeah. Let let me just, I, I so agree with you on healthy. I actually came to this one in a slightly different way, Mm -hmm. which is that Andrew Scott, who's my co-writer on two books, The 100-Year Life and The New Long Life, uh, he's an economist and Mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist. So the question that we asked ourselves was what happens when everyone lives to 100, which is within the bounds of possibility for both us and indeed for our children. Well, guess what? The number one economic reality is that if you – live to a hundred, unless you've saved up a lot and let's face it, none of us do, you'll be working into your Mm seventies. And so the question of healthy living becomes absolutely astonishingly important because unless you stay healthy, there's no way that you can work into your seventies. And, and, and we all know what it takes to be healthy. We all know that we know that it's, it's to do with exercise it's to do with what you eat and it's to do with sleep. Mm -hmm. And, uh, What we have to do at work is to try and create working circumstances that allow people to do each one of those things. One of the reasons I'm really pushing hybrid work, and by that I mean the possibility that people have more flexibility about when and where they work, is that that's time, that extra time they can use to stay healthy. You know, If you're commuting one and a half hours each way, that's three hours a day into the office, what you learned during the pandemic is that people could get out and walk for those three hours. You know, they could prepare nicer food, you know, for the evening because they had time. They could walk into their neighborhood and buy healthier food. So I think that as we become more flexible, and I hope we will, about, about when and where we work, one of the enormous benefits is that we can produce healthier ways of living,
1: Okay, I totally agree with you and as this is mental health awareness week, that's like a big start our month, it's a big start to think about it. I want to do one more piece on this one though. If human capacity is about the creativity, the things that computers don't do, our ability to see ahead, to think, to plan, to see new solutions, to come up with alternative frameworks. We know from all the research on creativity that that happens in the moments when your brain is quiet. When it's not actively engaged in work, focused or thinking, like in the shower, for example, or waking up from a sleep or something else, how do we get back into our work, those moments when we're actually not engaged? So we get the creativity coming
2: through. Yeah, I agree. And again, looking talking to my friends at Microsoft last week, we're switching on our, you know, our... um, messaging things earlier than we ever did. And one hour earlier, lots of us were switching it off one hour later. So that time, that peaceful time, when our brain is able to do all of that interesting work and interesting thinking is disappearing. Look, here's the answer. And it's something I've been sort of thinking about for such a long time, because this is not just a, a recent problem. It's, to, it's a little bit to do with our individual habits And it's a bit to do with the organizational practices. Let me just say a bit more about that. In terms of individual habits, it's really realizing for yourself, every one of us, all of us who are listening today have to realize that we have some control over the way that we work. And if we want to be productive, we have to put time in our diaries where we're not scheduling meetings, where we're actually just thinking, where we give our time to do the walk, whatever we're doing. So that's really about your individual habits. Uh, and then the other is about the organization, really. So how the organization manages work to give you those those times which are going to be so important. And here it turns out that leadership role modeling is really important. So if you're listening and you're a leader, then do ask yourself, you know, what sort of role model am I providing? One, Wonder- the listeners can't see it, but I can see Wanda really smiling at this. Um, you know, what sort of role models are you providing that send out a message either that says it's OK to have downtime or more likely sends out a message that says never have downtime? So how you as a leader describe your own, the own, your own journey in terms of staying healthy and being productive is going to be really important to those around you.
1: Absolutely, I, I'm smiling because I know several companies that have created these mandatory non-meeting time frames, You know, an hour or two hours in the day where we're not going to have meetings, and yet it's the leaders that call and say, "In that two-hour time block, I know we're not supposed to have a meeting, but could we?" But, yeah,
0: I, I agree. But I need
1: this, but yeah. so I, I think that's right.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. When 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 I wrote the book, you know, what what I've tried to do in the book is to say. The redesign of work is a process, you know, it starts by understanding productivity, it then goes on to experimentation, and then it goes into making it happen. And the, the three call-out groups for making it happen are leaders in terms of their narrative, the words that they use. Yes. Uh, the second is managers, and because it's they who have to do a lot of the, the complicated stuff yeah. like team agreements. You know, what happens, for example, if you decide people can work from home and one person comes in on a monday the other comes in on a tuesday and the i mean another on a wednesday that's not going to work so those team agreements but then individuals themselves so it does start a lot with the signalling of leadership and how they what the words that they use and also their actions and behaviours right all right so linda
1: let's talk about some of these examples because yeah. one of the things that's fascinating through in the book is that you have examples experiments that companies are doing, peppered throughout the book. And again, not that we know what the right answer is necessarily, but that we have to do, I think, as you said earlier, a lot more experimentation to redesign and discover what's going to work for individual teams and for organizations. So one of the ones that I was fascinated with very early on is PricewaterhouseCoopers onboarding of new hires Mm -hmm. and using a virtual reality platform for doing Mm. Virtual reality. Tell me about what they're doing and how. Well,
2: actually, actually, it turns out Accenture have done it as well this year. And, and the reason both PwC and Accenture are doing this is that they are one of the major recruiters of graduates. And usually, what they do, I'm sure that some of your um, your listeners have gone through the boot camp. You know, where yeah. you go for weeks on end in, in these in these organisations. And they said, we can't get everybody together during COVID, but we've got to do something. So, both of them built platforms that allowed people to interact in in a, in a virtual reality, and interestingly enough, the sort of feedback they got from these experiences were as positive as if they were meeting face to face by the way, i don't think that this is an entire you know i don't th- I, I don't think that people are going to spend all their time at work interacting on the metaverse or but it does show that when you're pushed to experiment like PwC or Accenture were, it's really surprising what some of the impact is. And actually what they found is that, for example, face-to-face, extroverts always feel a lot more comfortable. You know, they're the ones who are partying, they're the ones the first to speak. Introverts often suffer in, in these induction processes, the boot camps in other words. And what both PwC and Accenture found is that introverts said, Actually, I, I like this. I like this, that I can interact without always being at the front, the first one to speak. So I think that this is going to be a really important part of how we learn about how to work. And you know, the fact that we interact so much on uh, these various platforms have all boosted our both our technological prowess, but also our capacity to build relationships Uh, with each other. Just one final point that I mentioned earlier that I just wrote an article in Harvard Business Review about the new role of the manager. It came out in March, 2022. And I wrote that with Diane Gerson, who's just stepped down from IBM. It's a very creative article. I'm sure you'll love it. Guess what? Diane and I have never met. Uh Uh-huh. It was all done on on Zoom and Microsoft Teams, the whole conversation. Now, we're meeting in June uh, in in my house in France, but we've never actually met each other. So it did make me really think, wow, I'm sure there's a lot more we can do, Uh, which is not to say I'm not looking forward to seeing her face-to-face and having a glass of wine together.
1: That's right. right. There is something, I mean, I found in the one-to-one conversations, particularly in my coaching conversations or in my client development work, that the virtual space works as well as in the meeting room, for the most part. There are some places where it doesn't work as well. But it's when you start to put one to many that it gets a lot harder to feel that you've gotten the same level of connection. Thinking, I'm an extrovert, so I would say that. And I imagine there are some introverts who are saying the opposite of it, but it's fascinating. All right, let's talk about one more. HSBC, and mapping the employee journey and the insights about what that means for redesigning work.
2: Oh well that was fascinating because you know when we think about employees we just think about them in a in a sort of a photograph a moment in time but actually what we know is that we've all got these life stages. You know, you come into the organization, you grow, you become disillusioned, you leave. <laughs> and that's very much like a customer journey. And, and what a retail company like a bank, HSBC, the marketing people spend a lot of time and effort thinking about customer journeys, but they take they don't have the same technology to look at employee journey. So what happened at HSBC is the head of marketing said, I want to look about... I want to look at employees as if they were consumers. Isn't that fascinating? And they found out as just as you would with consumers, what are the pain points, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what are the gains, gain points? And that gave them an entirely different way of thinking about what an employee wants across their life, their, their employment lifestyle start, stage. I can see that because it's
1: such different phases, both phases in your own personal life, as well as phases in your growth and development as a journey. Um, Can you give us any insights about how they use that experience to redesign one aspect of work?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that we know, and and it's coming out, I think, more in the pandemic as well, is that when you join an organization as a young person... um, just as an an aside, loneliness, which is a real issue, and you talked earlier about mental health, is highest in 16 to 24-year-olds. So as people join an organization, when they're 20, let's say, they're in the, the time of their life where they're most likely to be lonely. And what HSBC discovered is that one of the real pain points or potential gain points was moving from one job in the organization to another, where they felt very cut off. They didn't really understand how to make new friends. And so what they've done is to redesign those transitions so that people, especially young people, bring mentors with them. They take it to their next job and they get a much stronger sense of continuity than they perhaps had before. And also, really thinking about friendship and young people. I'm just writing something right now about friendship. And there's no question that a group that really suffered during the pandemic were were the young people in our organizations that didn't make the sort of friends that they normally do. And so I think we have to be doubly thoughtful right now about how do we help that age group, the 16 to 24-year-olds who we know have the highest level of loneliness? How do we help them to make sure their working experience is, is a place of friendship and relationships? Well, we know that
1: engagement, I have a two points on this one, engagement is driven by the relationships that I create or in part driven by the relationships that I create. It's also driven by meaningful work, but, you know, some would argue like Aaron Hurst does that it's virtually impossible to have meaningful work without meaningful relationships. So the notion of HSBC to map the transition points and where people are losing friends seems to me a really smart strategy for both increasing productivity, engagement, and retention inside an organization. All right. That said, one more piece of data for you. Ryan Jenkins who studies uh, generational differences and who will be a podcast guest again in just a few weeks. His data is that the Gen Z, the very youngest, so the 16 to 24-year-olds, are 46% want to get back at the office. Yeah. The one that's most technologically savvy is the keenest to get back to the office because they want the mentoring, they want the friendship, they want the camaraderie, they want the apprenticeship explanation learning. 46%. 46%. Yeah,
2: How about absolutely. That? And also, they don't, you know, they're, they're living in job share. They're living <laughs> in flat shares in the center of Manhattan. I mean, you know, it's they don't have the homes that some of the senior executives yep. have. And I do think that as we redesign work, you know, I talk about three things. The first stage of redesigning work is understanding. I talk about understanding three things. We've talked about two of them. One is understanding productivity. Um, you know, the questions of focus, coordination, cooperation. The second is understanding the employee, particularly in terms of their life's life cycle. And we know that young people desperately want to be face to face. And the third is networks. you talked earlier about Rob Cross's work. and we know that you know those networks which are just forming for young people are so important to them. And we have to find ways of working that when they come into the office, they feel as if they're part of something greater, and they feel as if they can really build their networks. Absolutely. All right,
1: productivity, employee lifecycle, and networks. All right, Linda, this strikes me as a perfect place to stop and take a break. And when we come back, I want—I've got a whole list of more examples that I want to hear about. So there's lots of experiments that you described and lots of implications. The book we're talking about today is Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. I think, Linda, what I like about this book more than anything is it poses some very powerful questions for Mm. people to think about as you're exploring this sense of what should work be and how do we make this new thing called hybrid work. And there's a lovely framework, as you just described, which starts with understanding the productivity so focus coordination and cooperation understanding the employee life cycle understanding the networks and then from there after that trying to do some experimentation so we'll be back after the break to hear a few more examples group and talk about career advancement and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on out of the we hope you'll
0: join us when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you are listening to out of the comfort zone to reach dr wanda wallace or her guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Linda Grattan. Linda Grattan is a professor of management practice at the London Business School. She's written 10 books. One of them that has sold thousands, millions of copies is called The 100-Year Life, the notion that we are going to be working, we're all going to live to be 100, or many of us will live to be 100, and that means that we will be working well into our 70s. The book we're talking about today, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everyone. I think the most important notion is that we've been in a massive experiment, but that we don't know what really is going to work. And so we need some guidelines for how do we begin to think about it. And what the book Redesigning Work does is create a framework for you to ask questions that are really important and a bunch of experiments. So we've been talking about experiments with a virtual reality platform in lieu of a boot camp, with mapping the employee journey, something I thought we should have done years ago, Mm -hmm. and then trying to understand where are the pain points and what do we do about it. And what I want to hear next is something I'm pretty passionate about, Fujitsu, Mm -hmm. reimagining the office location. So tell Mm -hmm. us about that one.
2: Well, the reason I started both the book and my HBR article, Harvard Business Review article about hybrid work with Fujitsu is that, honestly, Japanese companies are the most traditional companies in the world. There is nothing like a a Tokyo-based Japanese company in terms of tradition, you know, I've been going for years and saying, oh, for goodness sake, why are you all in the office all the time? It's terrible for anyone who's got a family, particularly women. Um, and they said, no, 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 we've all got to be it." Well, here, March of 2020, Fujitsu moved 60,000 people out of the offices in Tokyo to work from home. And in doing that, they said and still say. We are not going back. Now, they don't mean we're not going back to the office, but what they said is we're not going back to how we were. So one of the really interesting things that Fujitsu did is that they said, how do you want to work in terms of your office? And in a way, it sort of goes back to the focus, coordination, cooperation dimensions we were speaking of earlier. And what they realized is that quite a lot of people want to do, let's say, coordination work but they can't do it in their homes because the the apartment's too small, the kids are all around, the internet isn't working very well. So they they said, first of all, why don't we give people an opportunity just to to have a little office near where they live? And this was very important because what they wanted to do was to stop people having to commute the one and a half hours, which is the average commute into, into a Tokyo central office. So they put these hubs in the stations uh, and and Japan is full of stations. If you've not been to Japan, please go on the trains. The stations are amazing. They're places of fabulous food. Anyway, that was the first thing they did, because they knew that most people were in a tech with within a sort of 10 or 15 minute walk of a station. So they're starting to put um, offices in stations where you just simply go in and you can have a printer that works. Hip, hip, hooray, <laughs> and a connection that's working and so on. So that that was just for one-to-one work. It's it's a little cubicle, really. The okay. second thing they said is: look, but there's some stuff where you want to coordinate with your team and you want to be around a table. And so they the second type of office they're designing is one which has got slightly bigger tables, sl- bigger rooms where you come with your team. So you can sit down around a table and say, thresh out a coordination task, like let's take a look at this new project management. The third was the creative one where they said, we want to change our offices, which by the way, until then was sort of open plan with lots and lots of desks in them. I think everyone's realizing these were these were always terrible. We yeah, just, right. nobody dared say it, but I think we're all saying that now. And what they're now doing is changing their central Tokyo offices into creative places where teams can come with often um, consumers and people in their supply chain, to actually do creative stuff together so that the, the, the rooms are being kitted out to be much more creative. They're trying to bring, you know, the outside in so that you can interact with the community and so on. That's the sort of office I'm really interested in at the moment. And I'm talking to uh, two of the major architectural firms in the world about how do we design offices so that they're places you want to go to, yeah, you know, yeah. a place that, that draw you in. And it's interesting when architects talk about offices, they say, you know, we want them to be a place that's light, you know, that people actually get natural light and natural um, air. That seems to be a big deal with them. The other thing they say is we want to have it. They want to think about the circulation spaces. So, for example, you'll see and I mentioned it in the book in Arup's office, Arup being one of the big architectural design companies, uh, engineering companies in their office in Melbourne, in Australia, They've got a a very large sort of staircase uh, and they they encourage people to use those stairs rather than the lift. Why? Well, because they bump into each other as they come up and down the stairs. They can see each other. They can sort of wave at each other. So these grand staircases give these these serendipitous encounters, which we're thinking about, you know, where you just bump into each other. They're actually encouraging that. And they're opening up the offices so people can see each other. They can, you know, there's play areas and so on. So they really are realizing if you want people to get back into the office, you have to make the office a very enticing place. Right.
1: This is Chris Payne's argument. We were talking about him earlier before the
2: podcast started
1: Um, and his experience running all the real estate for BBC and basically saying, you know, and I agree with this argument, if you're going to communicate, commute for an hour each way, an hour and a half, two hours in some cases in a major metropolitan city, and you're going to come into the office to sit in the cubicle to do emails for six hours a day, I don't think so. Why? There's no it's, it's reason. Madness.
2: It's, it's absolute madness. And in fact, even last week, I was talking to an investment banker in, here in Manhattan, and she said exactly that. She said, you know, Linda, I have spent one and a half, half hours to get here. And it's going to take me one and a half hours to get back. And I have been on Zoom meetings the whole day. Why am oh, I here? Yeah, right. And that's that's really going to punch back, isn't right. it? It is. It's, it's interesting. We're having a big debate about this in the UK right now, because one of our politicians has said the whole of the civil service has got to come back to, to work in the office full time. And and he said, and I read again what he says, and he says, you know, the taxpayer has paid for offices. We've got to have people in it. Well, goodness if that isn't a case of the of the tail wagging the dog i don't know so honestly you design work simply to fill offices <laughs> i can't wait Let's to get back to the Let's uk so and have a, and have a chat with him on one of the radio <laughs> shows actually because it's just it's madness all right now all of my clients believe therefore that the answer to
1: this is we do hoteling So you show up in the morning, you get assigned a desk somewhere in the array of whatever desk. We don't need as many desks anymore because we don't have as many people in on a day-to-day basis. And that's it. And every day, you never know where you're going to sit. You just show up, which means you keep nothing at your desk. Mm. None of the things that might make your work productive are going to be there. But, well, never mind. I believe this is the fourth time I've seen this hoteling idea come. Yeah, me too. What's your view? Is
2: this going to- uh, I, I hated well, it the first time I saw it. I remember I was, years back, I was shown, an. I'm, I'm always fascinated in offices, and it sounds as if, Wanda, you are as well. And I was shown an office by a very proud CEO. And he took me around the office, which was completely pristine. This was about seven o'clock at night. He said, Linda, do you notice that there's nothing on anyone's desk? He said, and what we do, and this is the bit that really freaked me out. He said, if anybody leaves anything on the desk, We throw it away that night. And I just felt it was really inhuman, actually. And I still continue to feel that. I think that, you know, humans like to be around each other. They like their objects, they like their artifacts. You know, if you go to somebody's home study, you know, you'll notice that it's full of stuff, you know, it's full of photographs and I don't know, whatever. So we have to be really careful about that. Now, that's not to say that there will be times when you just come in and use an an office. So, for example, at at Fujitsu, the office I spoke about, which was the one that they would use in the station, that's not really their office. It's just an office that they're using for the day. They, they, They can't leave stuff there. But that doesn't mean to say there can't be another place. In their case, maybe their home office, which is much more about themselves. And I think what's also really important is as teams work together, the, the space that they create actually shows who they are as a team. Right. I had a, a marvelous opportunity a few weeks ago uh, to walk through the offices of Foster and Associates, which is one of the major architects. They've designed quite a lot of the iconic buildings on, on the West Coast of, Cal- in, of the US. And you know the teams, of course, they're architects, so they're very visual, but each team had a whole array of stuff that said, this is who we are, this is what we care about. This is, this is these artifacts, as architects call them, are so important. So I agree with you. This idea that humans can be cleaned every night and just go yeah. to where they, I I think it's going to it's gonna happen because of cost, but it doesn't mean to say it's right.
1: Yeah. Well, you and I both know you get a people, group of people together for a meeting, you take a break and you come back the next day or three days later, they sit in the exact same seat. I mean, you can't get <laughs> them out of that seat. So there is something about the creature of habit.
2: All right. So let's not talk about our just, just Let me give you one more example okay. on that because yeah. that's such. I, I love that. So, So, you know, one of the things that Rob Cross talks about, as you know, is boundary spanners, you know, the idea that you bump into other groups. And the Arab team in Melbourne made exactly the same observation that you've made, which is to say that people go back to their, even if you let them sit anywhere they want, they all, all go back to their same place. And it means that you don't have that sort of bumping into people from different teams. So what, what they do is every three months they they move teams from one part of the building to another so that they have different adjacencies. Because what we know from knowledge Um, how knowledge flows in networks is proximity is really important. And so you have to think about proximity as a valuable asset, just like any, so who stands next to who is a very valuable asset. You need to think about how do we maximize the productive uh, possibilities with regard to proximity? Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. We could talk about this for a really long time. Let me not do that because I get fascinated with the importance. The space that we're in, affects the relationships that we create. It affects the joy we experience. And ultimately, that means it's going to affect the productivity. So, I think we can't ignore the design of the space. But I'm going to move forward. Let's talk about Telstra's approach to time, team, and workflow.
2: Yeah. Well, when we talk, yes, Telstra is really interesting, actually, because one of the things that When Dan and I, Gerson and I were talking about the role of the manager, we did think that the manager sat at the very apex of this. And and I don't know, wonder what you feel about that. But I felt that for years, people always talked about the manager as the frozen level. Do you remember? Oh, if only if only we didn't have managers then somehow we CEOs could just immediately get stuff done. They're in the way. They're the dead level i felt for ages that they're not awesome, and that actually managers and team leaders are absolutely crucial. Well, guess what? The pandemic showed that more mm-hmm. clearly than anything else. Companies that have really good ways of studying productivity and engagement, and those tend to be, by the way, the tech companies, realized that the way the the manager interacted mm-hmm. was absolutely crucial to engagement and productivity. So managers sit at the very heart of this, so what we have to think about is how do you let managers do more of that empathy, and for lots of them, and Diane saw this very much at at IBM and the companies that she's been looking at, managers are overwhelmed with so many other tasks. So what Telstra has done, which was I think a really interesting and creative idea, is they separated out the manager's job, and they said some of you are going to be managers of people, and some of you will be managers of work, and they've. They've, you'll see from the, fr- from the book that they've been really thoughtful about that. So the managers of people, for example, uh, they're measured on a whole set of, as you would imagine, Wanda, things like engagement, but also really interesting things. Like one of the things they, man- they measure a manager of people on is, did you encourage your people to move to other parts of the organization i.e. let go of them, which is the opposite to what you want managers to do. And then in terms of managing the workflows, that was really to do with, you know, are the projects working on time? Is the bench strength strong enough? And so on. So the separation of the the manager's role, I thought was a really creative solution. And what I'm really excited about, I think, as you are, is these creative solutions. Because I was talking to Microsoft a few weeks ago and they said, you know we're very clear that the only way we can learn now is through experimentation there is no pathway for this and we have to try something out we have to measure to see whether it works or not and then we have to you know go about that process of redesign and i think that that these experiments like let's separate out those two jobs are absolutely fascinating I think, well, so
1: my book and this show is dedicated to the fact that we need to both manage people and we need to manage the work. Yeah. And we often try to merge that into one person, Mm -hmm. which is acceptable, except that it's two completely different skill sets, two different ways of thinking. And we don't help managers understand how to switch hats. Like I could imagine that somebody could manage work in one part of their day and manage the people in another part of their day. If we help them think about those as two different tasks and we don't.
2: Yeah, we, I, 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 I so agree.
1: About mm-hmm. the percentage of time 60% yeah. managing people or 60% managing work, or what is it? You know, we're, yeah. I think, any anyway, rate, something I get very passionate about. So if you think about that, that also has um, implications for how you design the work, for who needs to be where, when, who's making the decisions about what that looks like as well. Okay, I have to ask you about one more experiment Mm -hmm. that I am fascinated with. And this is Unilever's approach. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. The third way of employing
2: people. Yes, the third way. Shall I tell you something about that? Yes, please. Yes, please. Well, well, here's the thing that, um, you know, more and more people are becoming freelancers. But at the same time, you know, it takes—it's risky to become a freelancer. You often lose the connections you have to your development group and so on, and so it isn't for everybody. And what and what Unilever were finding is that they were losing some great people. And when they lost them, they said, "Well, why are you going?" And they said, "Well, I want to take a year off to travel the world, or I want to start my own business, or uh, my mum isn't well. I need to spend time with her." and Putting those two ideas together, the idea of the freelancer and the idea of people wanting flexibility around time, they said, why don't we start building a third way? And and this is where they've come to. You, Wanda, have been with us for some time, and now we trust you. So you're a Unilever employee. Mm -hmm. And the third way allows you to keep your uh, pension, some of your pension arrangements, and your um, health arrangements, and importantly, access to Unilever's training, which is pretty exceptional. And we'll give you a small basic salary. And then you'll get that even if you never work with us again, but we're expecting you to work with us. And when you do a project, we will pay you for the for the time you spend. So the reason they call it a third way is you can sort of see it's between being a freelancer and being a full-time employee. Now. When I heard this, I said, oh, this is great. You know, everybody in Unilever is going to do this, aren't they? And surprisingly not. I think I'd have to look again at the book, but I think it's only about 4% have taken it up and they don't expect it to be any more than that. And what that really showed me was, was, A, it was a great idea, but B, don't assume that something that you think is amazing is necessarily something that employees are going to think it's amazing. So what I like about this idea is... Unilever is realizing that different people want different things in terms of their life, and if you can give them an array of options, then some of them will take those options, but quite a lot won't. So just give people choice. And, and just as you know, your your passions uh, are about thinking about the people and the task. My passion is about choice. I, as I speak, as a humanistic psychologist. I really feel that most people want to do the best they can for themselves and for their family, and if they're given a little bit of choice and freedom to make those choices, they will they will make the right choices for for themselves and and for their families. So this for me is just a great uh, example of giving people options, right? It's um you're right, that freelancing
1: thing, I lose my health care benefits and I have to yeah. scramble to figure out how to do that or hope for the best or whatever. My pension doesn't keep vesting, so or mm-hmm. keep adding to it. So that's a problem. And training or mentorship or any of those sorts of things, or access back into the company to say what are the other new projects going on that I might like to be part
2: of. I'm just out. Yes. And 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 guess what? The group that loved it the most were not the people doing the third way, but their managers because they said, you know, for example, I spoke to a, marketer, a senior marketing person. They said something came up really quickly and i actually could find somebody who knew all about net, knew all about the networks of unilever and they started in a week so yeah. they didn't want to use a freelancer because they wanted somebody who knew how to use how to get work around the networks at unilever so it's an absolute win-win and there's lots of others you know for example jobshare which i think is so underrated as a win-win Um, the opportunity that you've got to share your job with somebody else. These are all experiments that all of us should be doing right now in our organizations. I was really
1: intrigued with this third way. And since so much of work is now becoming project-based, I can see that if you just add some small benefits, you can get a lot of loyalty, a lot of payoff, and a lot of engagement productivity out of people. Yeah, Um, I love it as well. Makes a ton of sense. Linda, yeah. sadly, we are out of time. I think we could keep talking about examples and about these models for quite a long time coming. So the book again, is redesigning work: How to Transform your Organization and Make hybrid work for everyone. I think the watchwords on this one are understand what is the kind of work that people need to be do- doing, the focus, the coordination, or the cooperation. What era is it that your employees are in terms of their life cycle, what are their needs? And then what are the experiments that we do that accommodate everybody, both in terms of place, in terms of timing, in terms of employment contract, in terms of reality platforms? I think there's a
2: lot that we could explore. Thank you. And can I also say, Rhonda, A, it's been wonderful to, 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 to have this great conversation with you. But if you go to my uh, website, www.lindagretton.com, Linda, by the way, spelt with a Y, not an I. There's a fantastic blueprint that you can, you can download for free. Um, in fact, you know, hundreds of people have already done that in the last couple of days. So do take a look at that blueprint. And if people like to hear my voice, I actually did this as an audio book. I actually narrated my own audio book, which I've never done before. But you could also spend six hours listening to me <laughs> speaking like this <laughs> highly recommend both the audio and the regular thank you. Linda
1: thank thanks you for being a guest today and join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone if you want to know how to apply these concepts and more check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com and we'll see you next week
0: thank you for joining us today.